0: Well, hello again. It is Coach Tim, Tim O'Keefe Spider, Juice Technologies, and I am delighted to introduce you to a very interesting person straight out of Silicon Valley, I just found out, and uh, has a great background that will help you be able to sell more of what you sell. His name is Patrick Ren Wads, and you're going to have to correct me on that, Patrick. He is an expert in complex sales, teaches new messaging strategies based on brain science by using the latest discoveries in cognitive biases. He has helped hundreds of companies and thousands of professionals close complex deals worth billions of dollars. Patrick was featured on a TED Talk on his previous book, uh, uh, is there a buy button inside the brain, which has over 145,251 views as of this moment on YouTube alone? Patrick, welcome. And how
1: are you? Yes. Good morning, team. I'm doing great. And thank you for having me on your show.
0: Can you correct me on your last name? Uh, it's French and I completely messed it up. I'm sorry.
1: No, it's Patrick. Whatever. You can call me Patrick. I should know.
0: It's easy for you to say. Uh, I, I appreciate you coming on. I'm, I'm juiced uh, to have you. I, uh, I watched your, uh, your TED Talk long ago, uh, and I lost track of it. It was put on one of those watch lists or whatever, and, and I was delighted to rediscover it, as well as a, a recent podcast from your company, Sales Brain. and I thought, I have to interview you. This, uh, you're talking about neuromarketing, and uh, your new book is titled The Persuasion Code,
1: and this is, in fact, your second book, and uh, what was the first book about? So, the first book was titled Neuromarketing, or Understanding the Buy Button Inside Your Customer's Brain, uh, and we wanted to make it clear with the second book that we have progressed a lot in our understanding of how people use their brain to make buying decisions. So, the second book called The Persuasion Code is really about uh, what do sales and marketing people really need to understand about the brain if they want to create any kind of communication that has an effect and a positive effect of persuasion. So the first book was really about talking about this new science of neural marketing. The second book goes one step further in revealing a 100% scientific model of what people do with their brain when they decide. Well, let me, let me, you have an interesting backstory that you
0: shared with me a few moments ago offline. And uh, I think it is very interesting because if there was not this backstory, we wouldn't be probably be talking today. You would actually be, uh, you know, on a beach somewhere retired. Uh, can you tell us what you did prior
1: to uh, developing sales brain? Yes, um, I was in the computer business. I actually started the first branch of a small computer company called Silicon Graphics. Uh, I said they were small because back then they were small, and then they became the number one company everybody wanted to work for in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Graphics invented the concept of 3D computing. So if today you do a video game on your phone or on a you know Xbox, the technology to allow you to manipulate these complex images in real time was invented by Silicon Graphics. So I was there in the best days of Silicon Graphics, and I met some of the smartest people on Earth. You know, I met the guys at Boeing that create wing. I met the guys at Shell that do gas and oil reservoir simulation. And I was always fascinated by why is it that some people can sell and some others cannot? And if you think about it, there are, you know, over 70,000 books that have been written on sales over Forty or 50,000 books that have been written on marketing, but there's never been a book that has bridged the gap between what neuroscientists know about the brain and what all business people have intuited about how the brain works. So my objective in the last 24, 20 years of my life has been to create a model that bridges the two and the definition of, you know, neural marketing. Well, you had, so, you had said, I think it was in in the, uh, the TED Talk, uh, you said... Marketing doesn't work. Right. Yes, marketing does not work because the principle of marketing is this. Marketing is about asking people, what do you want? And then based on that answer, people build a product or service. And then later, they create a strategy to sell that product or that service. But it is based on a fundamental flaw, an assumption which is wrong, which is that people know what they want. And in reality, people don't know what they want. So the, the new science of neuromarketing started about 18 years ago. And in neuromarketing, we do not trust what people say because we know that when you use self-reported measures of what people want, they have to use words to express deeper feelings. And these words are not an accurate representation of those feelings. So the promise of neuromarketing is that by measuring directly on the body of people how they feel, we will get a much better approximation of what they really want. And some of the techniques that we do to measure these um, effects, these physiological responses to stimulus, or you know, we measure how the skin of people changes resistance. In other words, when you get excited, your skin will change resistance, or your pupils will dilate. So, so we track the eyes of people, and we measure how people dilate. And these dilations can can take only one tenth of a second. We measure emotion based on how people contract the 43 muscles on their faces. We measure their electroencephalogram. In other words, we measure the smoke currents that are created on top of their skull, which are the result of their thinking. So all these techniques in neuromarketing have been around for about 15 to 18 years now. And what's unique about us at SalesBrain is not only do we do these measurements, but we've created a model a predictive model of, again, how people use their brain to make those decisions. So everything we do at Cell brain is in the context of that model. And all that model can be summarized to one concept, which is at the end of the day, people decide like reptiles. Why? Because our primal brain, there are two systems in the brain, if you want. There is what people call system one, which is the fast brain or the primal brain or the reptilian brain that primal brain has more impact on the rational brain, what is also called system two, which is also called the slow brain, which is what makes us uniquely human and uniquely smart. In other words, when we make decisions, we don't use our smart brain, we use our primal brain. So again, all our assumptions, if you want, all our model, everything we do is driven by this and it's supported by a number of scientists uh, the, the main one is, uh, Dr. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in Economy in 2002 for it. And he, he wrote a book on it called Think Fast and Slow. And he named those two systems in the brain, System 1 and System 2. And even more recently, actually, as early as October 2017, there is a guy by the name of Richard Theller who also won the Nobel Prize in Economy. And, uh, he wrote a book called Nudge, where I mean, he was a student of Kahneman and Richard Heller reinforced that notion and went further into the explanation of those two competing parts of our brain, system one and system two. But the key learning that you know we've made over these years is that our primal brain plays a greater role in what we decide than our rational brain. Let
0: me, let me interrupt you for a second because... I am kind of trying to grapple with the two system and uh, based on some common knowledge, I think, when people think of brains these days. And I want to think of uh, a couple ideas. One is right brain, left brain, and one is conscious, uh, subconscious. Is there any relation to any of that or or am I mixing uh, ideas? Yeah, so
1: everybody yeah, everybody is familiar with the distinction of the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. Uh, we know that these hemispheres have a um, preferred way of dealing with things. In other words, the logical things tend to be done in one hemisphere. The creative part of us tends to be done in another hemisphere, etc. But we're not that much interested in that differentiation. We are more interested in looking at the brain and slicing it in a different way. If you look at the brain and the external part of the brain, the outside layer, it is called the neocortex or the new brain. You can also call, you can also call it the rational brain. But if you look more deeper inside the brain, you will find what's called the middle brain. And towards the core of the brain, you will find the reptilian brain. And then at the end of this, this is terminated into the spine. Well, what we call the primal brain is both the middle brain and that reptilian brain. So again, we're talking deep inside the brain. And these two sections of the brain, which make up for the primal brain, we share it with a lot of other animals, pretty much we will share that brain with any vertebrate. So we will share it also with reptile. Anything which has a spine, the spine is terminated by the brain. So the brain is just the termination of our nervous system. And this is where decisions are made. And for the longest period of time, people thought that, you know, because we were called homo sapiens, which means the one we think, we would think about our decision that, in other words, a higher level of the brain, this neocortex, the smart brain, would drive our decision. But in reality now, we have enough scientific proof to say without the shadow of a doubt that the primal brain drives our behavior more predictably than our rational brain. You know, when we make a decision, there is always a tension between our primal brain and our rational brain. When those two brains are in agreement, well, the decision goes very quick and people make it instantly. But it's when those two brains are not completely aligned with the decision that the primal brain plays a greater role. I mean, and I can give you millions of examples, you know, where the primal brain uh Drives the decision. If you look, for example, at people who are addicted, you know, if you're addicted to drugs or alcohol, your neocortex knows that you're killing yourself slowly if you keep on drinking or smoking. But your primal brain goes, "Oh no, I love that shot with nicotine, or I love that, you know, glass of wine." And unfortunately for those people, the primal brain, which we believe also is the seat of the unconscious, and that, that would be a very long decision. But we've, we've come to the conclusion, and we've spoken to a number of researchers, to say that the unconscious is much more ro- the realm of the primal brain than it is the realm of the rational brain. Mm-hmm. So all this to say that people want to be effective in persuading others, they have to do a better job at accessing that primal brain. In other words, using logic to convince people is typically very ineffective.
0: Right, right. So we there, there's a line that <clears throat> I've uh, heard somewhere. Uh, we do things for irrational reasons and justify them with logic, right?
1: Yes. Actually, the guy who uh, said that originally is a researcher by the name of Antonio Damasio. Damasio is the head of the uh, uh, University of Southern California in Irvine. And he said something very interesting. He actually wrote a book on it to demonstrate. it. He said, we are not... Thinking machines that feel, we are feeling machines that think once in a while. So here is what happens. We make emotional decisions and then later we rationalize them. And 90% of that emotional decision is made at the unconscious level. And then later on, it is rationalized. And I, I will give you one example of one of the tests that Damasio did to demonstrate this. And I think it's, it's very revealing of the, both the wisdom of our primal brain, our, our, our unconscious, and its speed. But here is the test that he did. He invented a game where people had to draw from two decks of cards. Now, what people didn't know though is that one of the deck of cards was, was twisted to bring a positive gain, and the other one was twisted to give a negative gain. So imagine that positive Stack is on the left side. The negative stack is on the right side. And people could freely choose from either stack. And the game was very simple. You know, whenever people were taking, were drawing a high card, uh, I can't remember exactly if it was an eight or nine, but anything that was above an eight or a nine would give people a $1 gain. If they drew a two or a three, they would lose $1. Now, again, people didn't know that the stacks were not equivalent. So people started to draw the cards. And here is what happened. After an average of drawing 50 cards, people would say, you know what? Now I understand it. I'm always going to draw from the left side because I know that if I draw there, I'm going to get good cards. It took people 50 cards to realize that. Now, amazingly enough, around 30 cards, people were starting to word out. They were starting to express that they had some level of uncomfort with the right stack which would bring them a negative gain. But here is the key though. When we put people, when we attached on the finger of those people, one of these elements I just talked about, which is when we measure the resistance of the skin of people, only after about a dozen cards, their skin was starting to show the same effect of fear when they were going to draw from the negative stack. In other words, After only a dozen cards, people are starting to, you know, their body has registered the fact that there is something wrong with the the right stack that will give them a negative gain. Now, again, it took an additional 20 cards for people to word it, and it took 50 cards total for people to clearly express that the game was not fair and that they will always draw from, you know, the positive stack. So. That, that, you know, our unconscious is aware of it, becomes aware of it very quickly, but then our conscious brain only comes to play much later in the process. And that's the kind of work that a lot of researchers like Antonio Damasio are doing, but that all this knowledge has never been brought to the world of business. And this is what my partner and I uh, objective in life is. We want to make sure that people in business get this knowledge to their benefit so that they don't apply, uh, you know, they don't look at marketing as a, an empirical science. We are scientists and we want to make sure that people understand the science behind all these decisions.
0: Well, you, you, you talk about a word. I think this is a good segue into uh, some specifics. You, you talk uh, about the, the word uh, cognitive
1: bias. What is that? Oh, that's that's a very interesting subject. So all these scientists, like Antonio Damasio, have spent their life, they have dedicated their lives to understand how irrational we are. And they make it rational. In fact, there is another researcher by the name of Dan Ariely, who wrote a book called Predictably Irrational. Predictably mm-hmm. Irrational. And those researchers have come up with 188 cognitive biases. And those cognitive biases, if you want, are... A description, a scientific description of why we make these emotional decisions and why we are not irrational. In other words, there is a way to rationalize or to explain scientifically how irrational we are. And these rules, you know, to, to my knowledge today, we have 188 of those rules. And of course, the objective then is, is well... Now, those rules are complicated. and uh, Let me give you one example because it's one of the oldest and and one that people understand very easily. So one of these cognitive biases is called the primacy effect. Another one is called the recency effect. And here is what happened. Now, imagine if I was going to give you a list of 10 words, and I would ask you, Tim, why don't you try to remember these 10 words? Now, do you think you could easily remember these 10 words? Well, you could most likely remember the first words that I would tell you and the last words. Why? Because this is the recency and primacy effect. Recency means the last word that I just told you, the most recent in your mind, you would tend to remember these last words. And you would also tend to remember the first words that I said. In other words, you know, people know that you have only one chance to make a first impression. Typically, the very first thing that happens with somebody. We remember it, and it's hard for us to change our mind. So, again, of the 188 cognitive biases, two of them are called the recency primacy effect. And the result that they have is if I give you a list of 10 words, you will remember the first two words, you will tend to remember the last two words, and you will tend to forget everything in between. Well, I've just described to you two of those cognitive biases, but they have a huge impact on everything we do in sales and marketing. First first thing is you should not tell your customers the top 10 reasons why they should buy from you. Why? Because they will forget most of the one in the middle. So you should focus your message on at a maximum of three reasons why they should buy from you. And And those three reasons, they should become your mantra. You should repeat them because we know that repetition is also a key to memorization. So how then do you deal with all the other cognitive biases? Well, the good news is we've done the hard work. You know, we have translated these 188 cognitive biases in simple rules. And oh, by the way, they are all connected to the those two systems in the brain, system one and system two, or the primal brain and the rational brain. But we've made it much easier for marketeers to apply those without having to go deep in the trenches of Neuropsychology, evolutionary biology, and all that. You know? So what we've done is we've connected a bridge between the world of researchers like Antonio Damasio and the world of sales and marketing. And we've translated those 188 cognitive biases in four steps, if you want. Right? And, and at the end of the day, all those four steps are anchored in the fact that our primal brain plays a greater role in what we decide.
0: So uh, you uh, you have a a really neat diagram that you sent me. Uh, I think it's on your website also, but uh, yes. And you talk about the theory of persuasion, a a formula, and I think some of it. Some of it, uh, I think most people will will have. Some familiarity with, and I'm, uh, and and if I, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it off. That your persuasion probability equals pain times claims times gain, and I think most people go, yeah, okay, I've heard this in one way or the other, but the primal part times primal brain is is the key piece, right? Because that's the part where our biases is and and. and where a lot of us miss the point, and we go all logical in our our uh, our, our persuasion, and, and we lose the the game, we lose the the, the person's uh, interest at that point. So, uh, and if you want to go into this more deeper, please do. Um, but how do I use this? How do I how do I right. in a in a marketing situation specifically? You said earlier that sure. you know. 10 reasons or 100 reasons, there's three and, 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 and drive that home over and over. Uh, what else can I do as a, as, a, as a marketer?
1: Right. So again, our theory is that your persuasion probability is equal to the intensity of the pain that your customers are experiencing, multiplied by the uniqueness of your claims, multiplied by the perceived gain. In other words, you will take your customers from a painful situation if they buy from you, you will bring them to a less thing situation and that delta will complete the game. And at the end of the day, you still have to multiply all this by your capacity as a marketeer to reach the primal brain of your audience. And that factor alone is as important as the first three factors combined. So uh, that primal brain factor has to be elevated to the cube. But let me give you an example so that you, you really understand those three concepts of playing the game. Yeah. So... Imagine you're selling water. Most people, when they're selling water, they start talking about the water. But because the brain of people is selfish, because our primal brain does not know compassion, in other words, one of the ways to stimulate that primal brain, and again, it's a direct derivation of the 188 cognitive biases, is not so much to talk about me, the guy who's selling the water, or talk about my water, but it's to talk to you about your thirst, so here is what happened. When people buy water, they don't care about the water. They just want to quench their thirst. So it is the job of the person who is selling, not so much to talk about the water, but to diagnose the pain of the people who buy the product or service. And here's what happened. The unconscious pain is going to typically have a greater impact on the final decision of people than their conscious pain. So let me give you another example of that concept of pain. But if you're selling drills, the customer they don't want to buy a drill. They want to buy the holes. So you're in the hole enabling business. And my tendency is if I sell drill, because my primal brain is selfish, I want to think that everybody wants to hear about my drill. But nobody wants to hear about my drill. Everybody wants to hear about the hole. So if I do a proper diagnostic, I'm going to ask you, what kind of holes do you want? Do you want square holes? Do you want round holes? And that's one level in the diagnostic. But if I am smarter, I'm going to go, I'm not even in the hole-enabling business. Why? Because people don't buy drills to go, oh, I want to do 10,000 holes. No, people buy drills because they want to hang pictures on the wall. So if you do a deeper diagnostic, you will realize that you're in the picture hanging enabling business if you're selling drills. Right? So instead of talking to you about my, even the holes, I'm going to ask you. So how heavy are your are the pictures that you want to hang on the walls? You know, and if you're remodeling a hotel and you need to install a thousand, you need to install a thousand pictures on the wall. I'm going to ask, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to start then telling you later in my description of the benefit of my product that my drills are really light. Why? Because if you have to hang 10,000 pictures on the wall every day, your wrist is going to be sore. So the fact that my drill is light is going to be a key feature that I want to bring forward. So the first step in our process is to diagnose the pain. And it has to do with the fact that our brain is always trying to save energy when it decides. And it's fundamentally a device whose only intention is to help us survive. And that survival issue means that, again, I am not interested in hearing about the holes. I am interested in hearing how you can help me hang more pictures on the wall. And smart marketing and sales organization will not start by selling. They will start by diagnosing what are some of those conscious and, more importantly, unconscious pains that the customer experience. And this is what we call the pain. Does that make sense?
0: Totally, and and so you're we're really you're you're driving home that we're really at our core at the at the deepest level survival level is selfish by definition.
1: Yes, and it, and it's the notion of think about a single cell, a single you know a unicellular organism. A unicellular organism is, is not very smart, but it survives, and it survives only based on one concept: that if the stimulus is positive, in other words. Imagine I put a drop of sugar close to a unicellular. How will the unicellular react? It will react by going closer to that drop of sugar. By contrast, if I put a drop of acid, like, you know, lemon juice, for example, close to a unicellular, that unicellular will move away from the stimulus. Wow. So, right. So the whole purpose of sales and marketing today, is to create positive stimulus that will draw your audience towards your product. But even before you decide what stimulus you want to give them, hopefully a positive stimulus that will, you have to decide how will they react. And you have to realize that down the road, people make their decision based on if I go towards this stimulus, will that help me survive or do I want to move away from it? In other words, is the stimulus going to create more pain in my life or is that stimulus going to create more pleasure? And that's why you need to start by diagnosing the pain. In other words, all too often, marketing organizations start by showing off the benefits of their solution. But it is not as effective as if you spend one step to listen to your customer to show that you have compassion towards their pain. And more importantly, that your expertise combined with their knowledge of their own situation will help you both reach the best diagnostic. Because, you know, we use the word diagnose the pain because diagnostic means that there is an expert who knows a thing or two about his field. And then there is a patient who has a certain knowledge of his condition. And it's only by marrying the expertise of the seller with the knowledge of the buyer of his own condition, that you can reach the best possible diagnostic. In other words, it is truly important that I, you know, if I'm the expert in drills, that I start talking to you to help you realize that, yes, having a light drill is going to be important for, your, for the people that are going to use the drill because you may not even have thought about this. Right? Fascinating. Fascinating. So, so, so this is the first step of diagnosing the pain. The second step is about differentiating your claims. And what's happening is that that primal brain that I'm talking about is meant to make quick decisions. So it, it's a brain that works like a reflex function, if you want. In other words, imagine you're driving in the night, right? And a light flashes on the right-hand side. That contrast between the darkness of the night and the flashing light Will instantly trigger your brain to tell you, look at the light. You know, where is it coming from? What kind of light is the, you know, the deer caught in the headlight kind of syndrome. So contrast is really important. Why? Because a typical brain processes about 11 million bits of information per second. However, we can only focus 50%, 50 bits of information per second. We can focus our attention only on 50 bits per second. So how do our brain decide to go from 11 million bits, which is what, we, what you're doing right now? I mean, although you might not be aware of it, but your brain is processing a lot of thoughts. It might be processing information from your visual uh, sense. It might be hearing things. It might be touching things, 11 million bits. However, you can only focus on a very small portion of that. And you use contrast as a way to decide on which bit to focus on. Again, when the light flashes in the night, Instantly, the contract forces your head to turn there. The problem is in modern sales and marketing today, most people are saying, We are one of the leading provider of. In other words, after you've diagnosed the pain, you're going to have to sell your product. You have to highlight the unique benefit of your solution. And when you say, We are one of the leading provider of, there is absolutely zero contrast. Why? Because your competitors are saying the same thing. In other words, once you have identified the pain, Unfortunately, most likely, you have a lot of competitors that are offering a solution which is very similar to yours. There is not enough contrast between your solution and their solution. And that lack of contrast will discourage your customers to buy from you. So you need to come up with your claims. What's unique about your solution that will eliminate their pain? So going back to my story of the drill, You know, talking about the fact that your drill rotates at 10,000 RPM is not that exciting if if everybody else's drill rotates at 10,000 RPM. But if your drills are lighter, and it it will allow the people that use them not to have to go to the doctor every week because they won't have carpal tunnel syndrome, then you should only talk about the fact that your drills are lighter than your competitors. And that concept will leave the claim. And again, the claims, people give it many different names. People sometimes call the claims the brand attributes or the the unique reason to buy or the unique selling proposition, USP. doesn't matter what you call it. What matters is that at the end of the day, because the brand is sensitive to contrast, it is your job to come up with a maximum of three unique reasons why your customer should buy from you. So that's Uh, the claim. okay. Okay. Then the third step in our process in the formula of persuasion is how do you demonstrate the gain? So again, first step is diagnose the pain. Second step is differentiate your claims. And third step is demonstrate the gain. Well, why do you need to demonstrate the gain? Well, because of course, everybody will tell you I have the best drills in the world, but that, that that's not enough. So whatever it is that you're bringing forward as the key reason why the customer should buy with you and not any of your competitors, you need to go one step beyond and you need to give tangible proofs. Why? Because, you know, our primal brain is the brain that is very skeptical. In other words, most people, you know, sell by selling, well, you know, you should buy from me. If you buy from me, it will save you a million dollars or your life will be better or whatever. But they do not prove it. And by nature, we're very skeptical. Again, you know. We know that all the decisions we make are based on our survival. And if we overspend when we buy something, uh, it's not good to help us survive. So when you tell your customer, trust me, guess what? Their unconscious goes, uh-uh, I don't want to trust one of my vendors. You know, I want them to give me tangible proofs that if I invest $1 with them, I will get a return on investment which is greater than $1. So we found that when people buy, there are three different kinds of values that people receive. They receive a financial value. In other words, if I buy from you, maybe I will save money. So it's a financial value. Or if I buy from you, it will improve my business from a strategic perspective. So there is a strategic value to buying things. And then at the end of the day, there is a personal value. In other words, when you sell something, all the decision influencers might draw a personal value in owning it. I'll give you an example, but... If I buy from you and I can work less, well, that's a personal value. In other words, it might not save me money, but if I want to spend more time with my kid, that's a personal value. Or pride of ownership. You know, if I buy a Porsche, I'm going to be pride of owning a Porsche. So there is no financial value of owning a Porsche. It typically costs more than any other car, but I will draw a personal pride of ownership of driving a fine piece of German engineering. Okay, so again, value can be subdivided into three categories. There is the financial value, there is the strategic value, and then there is the personal value. So the job of everybody is to maximize for any given price point this financial, strategic, and personal value. But maximizing it and making it more tangible and quantifying it, it's still not enough. You have to prove it. And we found that there are only four ways you can prove value. And the four ways to prove a value is, A, using a customer case. Now, customer cases are very strong proof of value because not you, the vendor, selling it, it's one of your customers. Second, best proof of value is demonstrating it using some forms of logic. Third proof of value is using data or using analytical information. And last type is a vision. It's when you have none of the actual proof. It's when you tell your customer, trust me, and I will tell you a story, an analogy, and a metaphor so you trust me. So the objective of demonstrating the gain is to not only maximize the value that the customer perceives he will or she will receive, and maximize the type of proof that we use. So in our model, we have a very simple matrix, which shows the type of value and the types of proof. And let me, uh, let me give you another example here on these notions of pain, claim, gain. Yeah. Now... You know, imagine you were going to buy a home-delivered pizza. What do you think is the number one pain of the average consumer of pizza in the US? I have no idea. All right, so most people say, well, they want to make sure the pizza is not cold, they want to get a quality pizza, they don't want to overpay, etc. cetera. But in fact, a small pizza shop about 35 years ago, they were based in Detroit at the time, uh, they realized that the number one pain is the anxiety of not knowing when the pizza will arrive? So first of all, it's kind of interesting, but although you know everybody's a potential buyer of home delivered pizza, it takes a few questions or it takes a few moments for people to admit that the anxiety of not drawing, of not knowing when the pizza will arrive, would be the key driver of their decision. Now here is what happened: when that old pizza shop realized this, they came up with a slogan, and their slogan was. 30 minutes or less, or it's free. And as you now can realize, that you know, organization is dominoes. Yep. And so the moral of my story is, A, domino pizza is not in the pizza business. They are a FedEx organization which happened to sell pizza. In other words, the pizza is just an accessory to the business. And oh, by the way, how did they demonstrate the gain? Well, they demonstrated the gain by adding, adding the word, or it's free, in their slogan. Yeah? They said 30 minutes or less, and that's the cure of the pain, or it's free. That's the demonstration of the game. So I love Domino's Pizza because in the Domino's Pizza story, you can see the progression of these three notions of pain claim game. A, they focus on the pain, which is that anxiety of not knowing. And oh, by the way, that concept is not reserved for the VP of marketing because everybody knows that Domino's, even the guys who drive the truck, that they are not in the pizza business. So that's the pain, the anxiety of not knowing. What's their claim? Their claim is 30 minutes or less. And of course, their claim provides direct elimination of the pain, and their claim is unique. In other words, they are not making claims about the pizza. Why? Because, you, you know, you cannot say we have the best pizza because Pizza Hut is probably making the claim that they have the best pizza. So they chose as a claim, they focused... The, value prop on the delivery because they found that it was the unique thing that they could do. And oh, by the way, they go very far in that because if you go on their website today, you will find the pizza tracker, which is a little app which shows you in real time where your pizza is in the process. Right? And oh, then know. how did they demonstrate the game? They demonstrated the game by adding or it's free in their slogan. Wow, so I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I
0: didn't know they've gotten to the point where they have a tracker on there. That's pretty,
1: pretty cool. Uh, so those first three steps in the process of answering the question of what's the pain, what are your unique claims to eliminate those pain, and how do you demonstrate the gain, when you answer these three questions of pain, claim, gain, you will have solved the equation of what you need to communicate. In other words, it will help you solidify the content of your message. And then the last step in our process, which is you know almost half of our book, is once you have agreed on the what you need to say, can you agree on the how you need to say it so that it will resonate with our primal brain? So the last step, which is how do you deliver to the primal brain, is all about communication techniques. Now, knowing that, that the primal brain does not understand words. Why? Because our primal brain is about 200 million years old. And words are not tangible enough as a stimuli to influence people. You know, I'll give you an idea, but a visual goes directly to your primal brain, goes much faster to the primal brain than all the words in the world. And this is something that people have known for a long, long time. You know, people say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, great. So if a picture is worth a thousand words, how can you communicate your value proposition in one visual? And very often, people mistake a picture of their product for a picture of their value prop. Now, I'll give you a very simple example that everybody understands. But we've all seen these pictures where you have a guy who's bald, and then you have the same guy with a bunch of hair. Now, most people, when they communicate about their products and services, they give a picture of the product and the service. In that case, it would be a little bottle of, you know, a special shampoo which regrows your hair. But nobody cares about that shampoo, right? If I am bald, I only care about seeing me with hair. So think about how we've seen the use of these images where in one image where you see the bald guy on the left and the guy with hair on the right-hand side, they communicate not about the product, but they communicate about the gain or the value proposition of the product. So in the case of people that are selling a shampoo, you might think that it's easy. Think about how they do the same thing for programs to lose weight. You know, people will sell you a program to lose weight. On the left side, you have the guy's 300 pounds. And on the right side, you have the same guy after he's lost 100 pounds. By the way, they use a customer case to show the value, right? The guy's lost 100 pounds. And more importantly, they show you a visual because that visual will go to your primal brain more effectively than all the words in the world. So that last step to deliver to your primal brain is about, Translating your value proposition, which most of the time people communicate using only words, by using a visual, or by embedding your value prop into a story. You know, what's your story? Well, the story has a unique capacity to transport the listener into a fake world, right? Which makes their primal brain believe that the story is real. So if the punchline of your story is, oh, by the way, If only you were going to buy my program to lose weight, you would indeed lose 100 pounds. Then my brain is going to start to believe the story. As opposed to if I tell you, well, uh, you know, if you come to my gym and you work out three times a, a week and you eat less and you exercise more and blah, 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 then you will lose 100 pounds. That doesn't make it appealing to my primal brain because it's just a series of words.
0: Hey, let me inter- interrupt you for a second. Something I, I thought of uh, that with my own gym, and I'm thinking of the the guy who owns it. And he, in fact, would probably draw out that logical uh, explanation. You know, if you consume so many calories and you work out, and you know, this <laughs> long academic <laughs> uh, uh, coaching, what? Where does uh the ethics in this work its way into the the marketing because obviously, if you sell me on not eating and all this pain 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 that's it's going to cause me uh in time and effort and soreness you know uh in order to get healthy, that's not very compelling so i, I you see like you said, you, people will put pictures. A lot of them, the before afters are fake, uh, that are in the magazine selling gym memberships or, or, uh, weight loss products or whatnot. Where, where does the ethics work in on, on say a guy like my, uh, the owner of my gym, you know, where he, he's got to get a little bit more hyperbolic if he's going to sell more memberships. But at some point, there's, there's a a line that gets crossed. And, and uh, I think that's a, that's an issue that we're probably facing as a, uh, as a culture right now, just with all the politics and the news and, and whatnot. I think a lot of, of, of the organizations are uh, either going too far, but at the same time, like I'm saying with the gym owner, that they're not going far enough. What what do you say on that?
1: Okay. So, I think I understand your question. There might be actually two questions in yours. But first of all, we have to realize that when we're selling something, so let's imagine I'm selling a glass of water, and imagine that glass of water is half full or half empty. If I sell you a glass of water, which is half full or half empty, we all know that doing smart sales and marketing is going to be about telling you that the glass is half full. In other words, I'm never going to tell you that the glass is half empty. It would be, you know, coming up with a negative bias up front. So nobody would buy a glass which is half empty. Everybody would buy a glass which is half full. So then the question of the ethics comes afterwards, after that, if you want. In other words, yes, we all know that people are trying to manipulate us, but we have to be clear up front. We have to know if they are trying to manipulate us, because here is what happens, is it is always easier to persuade people when they don't know they are being persuaded. So this is where we draw the line of what is ethical and what is not. And in fact, you know, we would encourage every consumer to read our book because they will learn what marketeers are doing to try to influence them. But sometimes that it is good to be influenced when you know that the people do it for your own good. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Germany and Austria are very close uh, geographically. I mean, they touch each other, and culturally, they are also two very close countries. I mean, they they share the same language. Uh, actually, I happen to have lived in Munich, which is in the south of Germany, which is almost, you know, which is really close to Austria. I mean, typically, you couldn't tell the difference between Austrians and Germans. It's almost identical in culture. Yet, in Germany, um, The DMV of Germany was trying to get more people to donate organs. And they realized that only about 5% of the Germans were giving organs. And it didn't make sense. Why? Because Austrian drivers gave the organs at 95%. So why would that be such a huge difference in the fact that, you know, the Austrians wouldn't want to give the organs when the Germans would? And as we all know, it's important to give organs because there are many organ donors out there that are dying, not being able to receive those organs. And you know what they found? They found that in Germany, the default version, when you filled up the DMV form in Germany, and at the bottom you had, do you want to be a donor? Yes or no? And the default version was no. And guess what? Of course, the default version in Austria was yes. Ah. So... Is it ethical then for the GMV in Germany to put now as a new default version that yes, you will be an organ donor? Well, I believe that yes, it is because I know it's good for people to give the organs, right? But that bias is explaining, you know, one of them. I mean, when you look at the cognitive biases, you could easily understand why people choose the default version because it's easier. My brain will want to go a shortcut My brain will want to save energy. So if I don't do anything, the default version is good enough for me because I don't have to do anything. I don't have to even think about it. And if I don't have to think about it, it's good because I can save my cognitive resources to think about something else. So the the issue of ethics gets very, very complicated. But what I believe is important is that it's important to the consumer to learn how their cognitive biases will get them to choose one option versus the other. So, so I I'm not sure if I answered your question. I, I agree with
0: you. And that's why I brought it up. In in your talk you had uh you had gotten into that a little bit and I uh I, I think uh more than ever uh that we we are would do well as consumers to educate ourselves on uh all of this. Um because, like you said, this is how people are manipulating us either for good or for or for bad. Um, let me let me draw out of you, if I may, um, on that same consumer idea. Uh, somewhere in your talk, you mentioned what if judges, what if r- people in relationships, single people, what if everybody l- got smarter about this stuff, learned about it, got knowledgeable about it, uh, what? Would happen in, say, education? How better would we teach uh, our kids? Um, and I had mentioned to you before, and I do a lot of this in this podcast where I will actually start uh, people talking about influence from a coaching perspective and uh, coaching f- American football. And uh, part of the reason I wanted them to do that is to give new ideas, new perspectives uh, that they probably weren't used to, um, but also I coached um, American football, so I was looking for tips, and I have people uh, that that actually follow me uh, just for the football stuff and not the business stuff, so how can I use this in coaching, and then I'm also going to ask you, how can I use this to be a better husband, okay. which might be. Might be a
1: a big (laughs) (laughs) grab. So so it it sounds like uh, your question has many different aspects. So let me me start by answering on the first part of your question. So why do you think that it would be important for judges to realize that they will be using their primal brain when they make a verdict, whereas Mm. by definition, they should be completely neutral in other words, the job of a judge is to remove all the emotion out of the decision and to come up with a purely irrational decision. Unfortunately, it's impossible. And in fact, uh, a a number of researchers have studied what happened with judges. And we know, for example, that the judges are more lenient in the middle of the day. You know, it's that recent C primacy effect. Wow. Uh, In the middle of the day, they tend to give uh, easier verdicts. But if you're the first guy in the morning when they're still fresh, they might be more strict. They might be more severe in their judging. Or if you're a lawyer, for example, as you probably know, lawyers are always fighting to get the opening statement and they're fighting to get the closing statement. Why? Because of that recency primacy bias that I talked about. So I think that if all these people who think that by nature they are 100% rational would realize that even what they think are their most rational decisions are in reality driven by their unconscious primal brain. I think we would uh, have much better decisions made at every level of government, at every level of the world. So that's for judges. For relationships, you know, the thing is, it's pretty much the same idea, that everybody wants to marry somebody who is rich, famous, in health, good-looking, etc. That's what we want. But in reality, what we really need might not be that person who is the, you know, the ideal person on the paper. And having a knowledge that, Whenever I'm going to make a decision with somebody, I'm going to judge those people with my primal brain and that maybe I should sacrifice a little bit of the physical attractiveness for a little bit more compassion or somebody who is a bit more aware of their own feelings, etc., is going to be good for me in the long run. I mean, if you look at the statistics today, right? Over 50% of the people divorce. So yeah. we know that it's, our odds are pretty bad, Right. So if I have a much better knowledge of my own primal nature, if I can help my partner understand also their primal nature, then the two of us as primal beings might be happier than if I am trying to look for somebody who just does not exist because we have all these extremely selective criteria. In fact, you know, our publisher has uh, tried to get us to write a book on the persuasion code for singles because... Wow! You know, when when you're a single person, well, think about it. The product that you're selling is yourself, right? By the way, if you look at the first step, diagnose the pain. As we all know, when you walk towards somebody and they start talking about them, 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 we typically turn around and move away, right? No, mm-hmm. so the people that are attractive are the people that talk to us about us, because they will diagnose my pain. They will ask me questions. You know, people that are interesting are not the people that talk to you about them. They are the people that talk to you about you. They are the people that ask you questions, right? So that's the first step of the process. So if you're single, diagnose the pain. You know, if you want to be an interesting person at a cocktail party, don't talk. Ask other people questions for a while till they return the question and then stop talking about you, right? But remember that when people tell you, eh, oh, you know, when you meet people, usually the, one of the very first questions that comes up is, what do you do?
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: if you ask me the question, what do I do? And I talk for 45 minutes you're going to run away, right? (laughs) So in reality, but no, let's be honest. When people ask you, what do you do? The only thing they want, because our primal brain is personal, it's selfish. The only thing they want to hear is, what do you do? Because they want to give you their, you know, they want to tell you about them, right? So remember this, when people ask you, what do you do? In reality, they are only interested in you returning that same question. So if you want to be the person who attracts people in relationships or in sales, when people tell you, what do you do? You give them a very short answer and you immediately, as quickly as and effectively and as naturally as possible, you want to return the question and you want to get them to talk. Right? So as you can see, I, I just spent a few seconds to talk about relationships, but let me talk about teachers now because you seem to be interested in coaching our football. Teachers are the same. I mean, think about, we can only be passionate about subjects when we like our teachers. you know it is very hard to get passionate when we don't like our teachers and when the teacher is not himself or herself passionate about our subject. So the job of teachers is to make their knowledge easily understood by the primal brain of their audience. I'll give you an example. Imagine if I try to teach you geometry by just talking, as opposed to showing you pictures of a triangle. Can you imagine how difficult it is to teach geometry if you don't use visuals? Well, think about sales. How difficult? I mean, we are trying to sell to our customers by just talking to them, but we don't have the proper visual that you know I was just talking about early on. So if you're teaching something which is by nature visual, you need to make whatever it is you're teaching more visual so people understand it. By contrast, if I'm trying to teach you French, Using a visual to teach French might not be as effective as using words. So if I want to explain the French grammar or French vocabulary, I'm going to have to use words. So by changing the modalities that they use when they teach, teachers can make their teachings much more appealing to the primal brain of their audiences. And, you know, in fact, I have a son with vividly dyslexic. He's in college now and he's been struggling with dyslexia his whole life. Uh but he has learned now how to work around. But if I try to teach him by using the auditory channel, there are three ways you can teach concepts, right? It's called yeah. visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. And I know you're also a practitioner of NLP, so, so I'm not going to teach you anything here. But if I want to teach you a concept, I can show it to you. It's going to be visual. I can tell you about it. It's going to be the auditory channel. Or I can give you a kinesthetic clue. In other words, I can get you involved with your body. So let's imagine I want to teach you the concept of a cat. Well, I can show you a picture of a cat. It will give you a certain understanding of the cat. Or I can describe to you that a cat, the cat is a four-legged animal with a furry out, you know, outside, and it tends to make meow meow, and it loves milk. So I'm using words now. I'm using your auditory channel to learn about cats. Or I can throw a cat in your lap and get you to play with the cat. And that's going to be using your kinesthetic channel. And here is what took me 25 years of sales experience to realize that in the business world, we tend to use the auditory channel. And so do teachers. Teachers tend to sell their knowledge or tend to teach their knowledge by using the auditory channel. Why? Because it's the easiest way to teach. Now, is it the most effective way? Well, if you're teaching French grammar, yes. If you're teaching golf, probably not. You know, if you want to teach golf, using the kinesthetic channel is going to be critical. To some degree, showing a a visual of a video of a good golf player is going to be good as well. But think about how many PowerPoints are using text, text, and pages of text because people tend to believe. It's not that they tend to believe. People go for the easy way. It is easier to teach most concepts by using the auditory channel. Unfortunately, our primal brain is mostly visual and quite kinesthetic but very little auditory. Why? And it's very simple. There is an evolutionary reason for that, which is that words have been around for only about 10,000 years for written words and spoken words have been around for only about 50,000 years. Well, our brain that decides our primal brain is about 500 million years old. So Words did not have enough time in evolutionary terms to make an impact on the primal brain. So what does that mean as a teacher, as a coach? You have to think about how your audience will best learn the concept that you're trying to teach. And of course, in the case of sports, that most, I mean, most sports are kinesthetic by definition. You know, Most sports involve the body. So most sports are best taught using the kinesthetic channel. But again, there is a learning for marketeers, which is how can you make your message, how can you make your communication more visual and more kinesthetic? Uh, And So that's the first part of my answer. The second part of my answer to your question is this. It is that you should teach your football players about the two-brain system. You should teach them about the primal brain and the rational brain. And here is why. I mean, every football coach is trying to get their team super psyched, you know, super aggressive because you want your players at the moment, you know, the quarterback gets the ball, you want them to be super aggressive, you need tackle, run fast, push the guy. So you want them to be aggressive. You want them to fully express the power of their primal brain. However, they have to always walk the fine line of what is a legal action and what is an illegal action. In other words, if you get your players too psyched up, they may may make a false start because they are trying to gain that one-tenth of a second at the beginning of a new action, right? So you want them to walk the fine line of what is legal and what is illegal. And Mm -hmm. if you make them more aware of the reptilian nature, then they can engage the rational brain to always act at the limit of what is legal and what is illegal. Because the minute they go over that fine line, You know your team will start to get more penalties and it's not good for the game, right? So by having your players be cognitively cognizant, right, to be aware of their own reptilian nature, what makes them aggressive, it's good to be aggressive to, to a point. But when they cross the line, then they start to make mistakes. So having players become aware of how their primal brain works, how it's the brain that reacts instantly, etc., cetera, uh, would benefit them because at the critical moment where they have to engage the slow brain, where they have to think about what they should do, then they don't make a mistake. And, you know, the obvious one is when there is a fumble and everybody gets really crazy about it, then you have a guy who, you know, punches one of his opponents. Well, right. punching a player in front of a referee is not good, right? And you can tell that at that moment, If they were able to, before they they trigger the punch, if they were able to go, "Uh uh-oh, now my aggressive brain is trying to punch the guy's nose because he pushed me in the back or whatever, but my rational brain goes, don't do it! You know, we're going to move back 15 yards, then your players would become better players. So this is why I keep saying that, you know, being aware of our reptilian nature is important for judges, it's important in your relationship, it's important for teachers, because it really helps you get people to realize that we make bad decisions all the time. Well, I think also
0: it's to deny uh, our nature is, is to uh, deny ourselves and, and, and not be a complete whole person. Uh, I I think that's really important to understand that we're more than uh, we uh, of the rational side, we're very irrational and and, uh, can kind of have a little bit better understanding of some of the stupid stuff we've done
1: in the past. (laughs) Yeah. Now the difficulty again is that, that all these processes are mostly unconscious. So we don't realize that we do this. In other words, if you ask a football player, why he punched the nose of the guy in front of the referee, he will tell you, well, because the guy pushed me in my back. Well, yes, we saw that. He pushed you in the back, but you should not have overreacted. <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: right, right. Well, I, I, uh, w- and, and funny enough, there's, there's processes in practice. You talked about memorization, and that's why, uh, you, you you blow the whistle and that means all the primal stuff kind of goes away and and uh you get back to the rational and then you get out of the huddle and you get and then it's the ball's hiked and now you're into the primal right it, it yep. kind of works like that well, you know what I could talk with you and ask you questions all day long. I have been fascinated, and I think this should i hope illuminate uh, a, a better process for my listeners in selling people their wares, their services, their products, and their goods, and uh, so they could make more money. How, Patrick, can people
1: get a hold of you? Um, you know, our website is salesbrain.com. Uh, the poster, all the theory, etc., cetera, is, is pretty displayed there. Uh, our book is now available on Amazon. So the book title is The Persuasion Code. Uh, it's been available for about a week now. And then they will get, uh, you know, the book has one visual. So, you know, we walk the talk. You know, all our concepts at the end of the day are translated into one single poster, which is the back of the cover of the book. Uh, but because we know that, you know, people's primal brain is mostly visual, so we made our teachings more visual. Uh, so that's uh, the best way, and uh, you know, if they go on our website, they will see my. Uh, if they have to contact us, there is a way of contacting us. Yeah, and uh, you uh,
0: answer back very quickly. Um, I can tell you that. <laughs> so that was awesome. Hey, Patrick, I appreciate it. Uh, I will have the links in the uh, the show notes, and uh, I wish you the very best of luck. And I hope to talk with you again sometime. Thank you, Tim. Well, thank you, and uh, you
1: have a great day.